Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, November 9th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian Richard Brookheiser joins New York Historical Society's Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory, for a talk about George Washington during the Revolutionary War. So let's start with the big question. Can the British win the war by taking the nation's capital? Right. This is the question of 1777, which is the third year of the revolution. Uh, The revolution is the longest war we will fight until Vietnam. Uh, It's eight years. It's longer than the Civil War and World War II put together. But this is the third year. And the question for the British is, can they win it by capturing the capital? And the question for the Americans is, can they defend their capital or survive the loss of it? But uh, before before we begin, I just want to direct your attention to this very cool map. And you can see uh, there are lines, red and blue lines. Uh, The red lines are the British, the blue lines are the Americans. But I want you to begin by ignoring the lines, because the men who were fighting didn't have these lines. (laughs) They had maps, but the lines, they're making the lines. They have plans, they have hopes, but the lines are the results. The lines are what happens in the course of the war. So I want you to, first of all, focus on four places. This is New York. This is where we are right now. Uh, It's the best harbor uh, in eastern North America, uh, a very valuable place uh, to have headquarters if you can hold it. It's the second largest city in the 13 colonies, about 20,000 people. It has recently passed Boston for the second place. This is Philadelphia. This is where the Continental Congress sits. It first met there in 1774, met for the second time in 1775, and then it sits there continuously after that. Philadelphia is the largest city in British, uh, in the United States and the 13 colonies. It's about 30,000 people. It's the second largest city in the English-speaking world. Uh, London is very much bigger. It's almost a million people. But there is no other city in British North America or in the British Isles that is bigger than Philadelphia. This is Boston. That uh, is now the third largest city. That's where the Revolutionary War begins in the spring of 1775 with the battles of Lexington and Concord in April and then Bunker Hill in May. And here is Albany. This is actually an older city than New York. Uh, The Dutch founded both cities in the 17th century. Albany was first. They were founded as fur trading posts. And Albany is, at this time, as it is now, much smaller than New York City, but it's very centrally located. And I'll explain the importance of that now when I talk about rivers. That's the next thing I want to show you on this map. Rivers are important because there are hardly any roads. 
Um, settlement is along the coast. Everything from here out, this is all trees, Indians, <laughs> bison. Uh, the roads that exist, there are a fair number in here, but they're not very good. If you want to get anywhere, the easiest way to do it is by a river, if you can, or by the ocean. So here's the Hudson. Uh, It is tidal all the way up to Albany and even beyond. In other words, the tide rises and falls. The Hudson is actually a fjord. It is a drowned riverbed, and it's uh, broad, it's navigable. Uh, Here, it's not on the map, but there is a river that runs uh, west to east called the Mohawk that joins the Hudson at Albany, and it allows you to sail in this direction into the interior of New York. Here is the Delaware River, kind of hard to see because of the big star and all the lines. But the Delaware comes in from the Atlantic up to Philadelphia, and it's navigable. Uh, Pennsylvania doesn't have a seacoast, but ocean-going ships can sail into Philadelphia up the Delaware River. And then the last thing is Chesapeake Bay. Here it is. Um, If Washington, D.C. existed, it would be like here, but it's not there yet. Baltimore isn't even really in existence. But the Chesapeake, uh, if you sail in here at the entrance of it, you can go to the west and you can sail all the way up to the north, um, almost Pennsylvania. You're, You're here still in Maryland, but it allows you a nice shot up in this direction. Okay, so that... That is the area that we're talking about. Um, Let me quickly do 1775 and 1776, because we want to set up this third year of the Revolution. The war begins here in Boston. Lexington and Concord are outside. Uh, Bunker Hill uh, is uh, right outside the city. Uh, These happen in the spring of 1775. The Continental Congress is meeting in Philadelphia while this is occurring. Uh, And while these battles are happening, they pick one of their delegates, George Washington of Virginia, to be the commander of their forces. Uh, They pick him because he's a Virginian, and they want the South to be part of this war along with the North. They also pick him because he fought in the French and Indian War. Uh, He rose to the rank of colonel. Uh, He fought in a number of battles. He fought in several losing battles, but he came out of them with a good reputation, reputation for courage. Now, Rick, wasn't he also one of the most reserved gentlemen in in the group? Uh, One of the the delegates said he was no ranting, harem-scarum fellow. (laughs) (laughs) And and this this impressed the fellow delegates. You know, they thought... um, uh, this is a man who's not a blowhard. He's not a show-off. Uh, he seems like he knows what he's doing. We can entrust you know, this important task to him. Uh, he was also modest. When they voted to pick him, he left the room. And then when he, when he came back, uh, he said, I want every gentleman to know uh, that I don't believe myself capable of, of, the, assign- of the honor that I have been given. But I, I will, of course, do it. But I have, you know, I have this reservation. So they weren't, they weren't picking someone who was grabbing for the job. Mm-hmm. And that's important because there, there's a fear of military leaders. All these guys had read their history, their Roman history, their English history. 
they knew there was a danger of military dictators, people like Caesar, like Cromwell. And they figured with Washington, we're not going to run into that problem. So Washington goes up from uh, Philadelphia to Boston. He takes command of the troops surrounding it, who are at first all from New England, but, but troops from elsewhere join them. And he conducts a siege of Boston from the spring of 1775 to March of 1776. And why is this taking so long? It's because the British don't feel capable of breaking out of the city, and the Americans know they are certainly not capable of attacking it. So they are sitting. What Washington is waiting for is cannon. These are cannon from Fort Ticonderoga, which is here, an old French and Indian War fort. These are captured at the end of um, 75, and they are taken across Massachusetts in the winter of 76 by Henry Knox as artillery commander, uh, who's a bookstore owner in Boston. He's never fought in his life, but he's read a lot of military history, and he turns out to be a genius. He figures out how to get these cannon across Massachusetts in the middle of the winter. Um, when he's taking them across frozen rivers, you know, there are no bridges. He has to go on the ice. To make the ice thicker, he cuts holes in the ice so the water will well up and freeze. And then he cuts more holes so it gets thicker and thicker. And that's how he gets them there. Uh, Washington puts them on the Dorchester Heights. The British realize they'll just be pounded into submission, so they take off. That's in the spring of 76. They go to their naval base, Halifax in Nova Scotia. But then they come back in the summer of 76 here to New York. Uh, Washington knew that that would probably be their next strike, so he has already come with his army from Boston to New York. And then in the late summer of 76 and the early fall of 76, there is a series of battles around our city. Uh, The first one is the Battle of Long Island, sometimes called the Battle of Brooklyn. Um, A lot of it was fought in what's now uh, Prospect Park. Uh, There's a pass in there called Battle Pass where there was uh, one of the engagements. It's a crushing American defeat. Uh, Washington takes the survivors uh, from Brooklyn over to Manhattan. Uh, The British land above him at uh, Kipps Bay and try and cut him off by marching across to Murray Hill. Uh, He takes his army up to Harlem. There's a skirmish there, which we actually win. But then the British outflank him again. He has to retreat to White Plains. So he's going up here. There's a battle in White Plains in October 1776, another defeat. He goes across the Hudson, down into New Jersey, and then in the At the end of this year, he is retreating across New Jersey, central New Jersey, towards Philadelphia, being pursued by the British. Now, should I say something about the British commanders here at this point? Okay. The two main ones, they're two brothers, the Howe brothers. Uh, Richard is the admiral. uh, William is the general. And um, these men, uh, they were in parliament. They'd been pro-American. They had voted against all the acts that we hated, uh, they stuck up for the colonies. But when the war came, they 
they served, they served the British cause. They were also, incidentally, cousins of George III, illegitimate cousins. Uh, their grandmother had been the mistress of George II, George III's grandfather. So this is the way things work in a small society like, like England. But so the Howe brothers uh, have the job of trying to win this war. Uh, General Howe, supported by his brother, has, has won the battles around New York. He's captured this excellent harbor. He's driven Washington out. So it looks like New York, or at least this part of New York, is now out of the game. Now, General Howe is proceeding to roll up New Jersey. Now, uh, just a quick question. What were were, uh, their troops, the differences between how many troops and how well off they were? Right, right. Well, um, during the battles of New York, Washington has 19,000 troops. Most of them are militia. Most of them have never fought before. The British have 32,000, British and also Hessians. You'll often see the Hessians described as mercenaries, which isn't quite right. Um, They weren't individual mercenaries. These were soldiers who served their princes. Uh, There were small German principalities uh, who would contract to um, have their armies fight in the wars of other countries. And so, you know, if you were a Hessian soldier, you, you signed up, you were a lifer, uh, soldiering was your life, and you fought in the battles that your prince, your, your sovereign, arranged for you to fight. Um, over the course of the war, the British pay 7 million pounds for 30,000 of these soldiers. And I did the math, and it's like $360 million was, was what they paid. Now, I mean, the, the federal government loses $360 million every day in the cracks of the sofa. But, um, you know, the, the state was much smaller in the 18th century. So $360 million is, is quite a lot, of, a, a lot of money. So this is the force that is pursuing, I mean, not every single one of them, but, but these are the troops that are coming at Washington's heels across New Jersey uh, as 1776 ends. Uh, the Delaware River, which uh, starts down there, winds up here. Washington crosses over it by the end of the year, middle of December. And Lord Howe, General Howe, concludes, well, that's it for this year. Now, were you referring to the crossing the Delaware? Well, there are, several, we cro- there's, there are several crossings of the Delaware. This is the first one. Washington's trying to get away from the British, and he succeeds. But Howe figures, okay, I have uh, pacified New York. I've pacified New Jersey. Now it's winter. We don't fight in the winter. I'll wait till the spring, and I'll wrap up this war by crossing the Delaware to Philadelphia, and I'm going to beat this colonial rebel. Um, Not a crazy notion, not an unrealistic notion. Uh, Washington surprises him, however, by the famous crossing of the Delaware, where he attacks Trenton on the day after Christmas. And uh, Trenton has a garrison of 900 Hessian soldiers uh, who are taken by surprise. Uh, You will read that they were carousing after Christmas Day and they were all drunk. That's not true. That's an American legend. The the Hessian soldiers were very good. They were very professional. They had had a warning 
that Washington might be trying something. And what happened was that an American militia company on its own did a little action. There was a little skirmish uh, in the early part of the evening. And the Hessian commander, Colonel Rawl, thought, this is what I was warned about. So, okay, fine. It's happened. Um, I can go to bed. My soldiers can get a normal night's sleep. He, he did he, not go drinking. No, he did not okay. go drinking. He was, just, he was sleeping. They were all sleeping. Um, and, and there were guards, but it was light because they figured the threat has passed. We were warned about something. It's already happened. It's all over. Fine. But uh, they were mistaken because the real operation was Washington was going to bring his whole army across the Delaware and try to surprise them before dawn. Um, it took longer than that. Dawn had actually broken by the time they get to Trenton. But they do take the Hessians by surprise. They take 900 prisoners, almost the entire garrison. Now, where do they put them? They took them to Philadelphia. They they took them back across the Delaware, marched them through the streets of Philadelphia, showed everybody, here here are the enemy prisoners, hurrah for the revolution. Uh, Then there is a second battle in New Jersey, the Battle of Princeton. Because after Trenton is lost, um, Lord Howe realizes this has happened, and he dispatches one of his generals, Lord Cornwallis, to take Trenton back. Washington is able to maneuver around Cornwallis to get in his rear and to attack Princeton, which he captures. And then this is the last engagement of that fighting season. Okay. Washington, can, we, can we just, okay. Okay, I'll right. just tell you where okay. Washington ends up, which yeah. is Morristown. Morristown in northern New Jersey, and that's where he spends the, the rest of the winter of now we're in January, January, February, 1777. And just stepping back to the, before the crossing, we were talking about how Thomas Paine's crisis pamphlet was oh, right. printed. Yes. And, you know, the state of the troops was that they were just... Well, the troops, um, they had lost all these battles yes. in New York. Uh, their enlistments were ending. You know, they'd enlisted for six months. Um, They were losing, so morale was low. They're losing and they're retreating. Uh, Thomas Paine, uh, English immigrant, um, takes the Patriot side. He's he's with Washington's army. Uh, He writes a pamphlet called The American Crisis, and then he hurries to Philadelphia to get it printed up. And then Washington has this read to his troops when he's trying to urge them to re-enlist before the Battle of Trenton. And, you know, my, my other job besides being a historian is a journalist. And I think this is the greatest lead paragraph in the history of journalism. I, I can't imagine how it will ever be topped, but this is, the pamphlet begins, these are the times that try men's souls. And it speaks of the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot uh, will not, serve his country now, but who does will deserve the love and thanks of men and women. It's just inspired writing. I, I, I compare it to uh, Henry, Henry V's speech before the Battle of Agincourt in Shakespeare. But the difference is that was a play. This was reality. Mm-hmm. This was real time. It's brilliant, inspiring writing. So thank you for mentioning Welcome. that. We, sh- we should never forget. Uh, so even though they were cold and sick and 
tired and low morale, that pamphlet helped that pamphlet rouse helped. their spirit. Yes, and also Washington personally appealed. You know, he addressed one of the units mm-hmm. and said, you know, I, you have done all that could be asked, but if you would realist now, you, you will never be able to do more for your country. So enough soldiers did it so that he had some troops. So now they're in Morristown. Now they're in Morristown. What's their state in Morristown? Okay. Well, Morristown is very cold. (laughs) Morristown (laughs) is cold. At least they're safe. The British are not going to do anything in the winter. Um, So they ride out that winter. Now we're in 1777. So Howe's notion was, I would, uh, you know, I've already I've taken New York. I thought I would have all of New Jersey. I can just go across the Delaware and get Philadelphia and wrap this whole thing up. However, he doesn't have all of New Jersey now. He's back in New York with most of his army. So what is the British High Command going to do? And a plan is developed by one of Howe's um, junior officers, a general named John Burgoyne. Uh, John Burgoyne uh, was a good general. He'd fought in Portugal. Uh, He was a playwright popular playwright, and he came up with a plan to split the 13 colonies. He would come down from Quebec. This was the main British base in this part of Canada. He would go up the St. Lawrence, and then he would come down. Now, here is Lake Champlain. It's not on the map, unfortunately, but you can sail down Lake Champlain. And this looks very tempting on a map, you know, because you've got a waterway that can take you all this way down to New York. But the problem is, once you get out of Lake Champlain, there you are in upstate New York. And uh, Burgoyne would discover problems with that. Uh, The other parts of the plan, a lieutenant colonel named Barrymore St. Ledger was to go, keep going down the St. Lawrence into Lake Ontario, he was going to land here at Fort Oswego and come up down the Mohawk, down the Mohawk River towards Albany. And Lord Howe, here in New York, would go up the Hudson. So you would have a three-way convergence on Albany, and then New England would be here, and the rest of the rebellious colonies would be here, and Britain would have split them in half. It's a great plan, but problems ensued. One problem was that Lord Howe still liked his plan. (laughs) Take Philadelphia. Philadelphia is their capital. What a blow to morale if they lose that. And I'm so close. I got so close. I got all the way to Trenton. Maybe I can find some way to get to Philadelphia. So... uh, You know, this is the 18th century. The orders are all coming from London, like over there. (laughs) Um, It takes a long time to get across the Atlantic. It's the age of sail. Um, The orders were not as definite as they might have been. Howe felt he had some wiggle room. So what Howe does is he leaves, he does leave 7,000 men in New York under uh, General Henry Clinton, was one of his junior officers. And Clinton's orders are to assist Burgoyne uh, in any way that Clinton finds necessary. Now, may I just interject sure. here? 
I understood that Burgoyne had no idea what was going on and that he expected how. Oh, yeah, of course. So no one told him. Well, right. This the, is this Burgoyne on. is following Burgoyne's plan. Okay. You know, Howe is following Howe's plan, but Burgoyne is following Burgoyne's plan. And the only problem is the plans are, di- are somewhat different. So, and no one was and, and neither, communicating. Not, yeah, that's right. Um, well, you know, Howe sort of is because he is, he is leaving 7,000 men here, which is not chopped liver. And they do have the orders to, you know, to, to assist. But Howe is taking most of his men, and he wants to get to Philadelphia. So let's, let's split our attention for a moment and look first at Howe's, what Howe does. Now, um, if he's not going to go overland, then he has to use the water. One thing he could do is come up the Delaware River. But what he does instead he sets forth from New York, and of course we lose touch with him. No, no drones. You know he's off at sea. Where is he going? We only realize where he's going when he's spotted here. When he's spotted coming in here, then it's obvious where he's going. He must be going here, which is in fact what he does. He sails all the way up Chesapeake Bay. And there's a little spot here called Head of Elk because there's a tiny river that runs in the Elk River. It's called Head of Elk. This is not many miles from Philadelphia. It's, um, it's pretty easy country. It's not that far. So this is how his plan. He's going to land here, and he's going to attack Philadelphia from the south. Not this way, but he's going to come up this way. Now, who is in Philadelphia now? The Continental Congress. And George Washington. George Washington. George Washington and most of his army. Now, there are American troops here in upstate New York. A lot of them are New England militia. The commander in this theater is uh, a man that Washington likes and respects, General Philip Schuyler. Uh, he's Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law, by the way. Uh, but he is a wealthy uh, New York uh, Dutch ancestry, landowner, patriot, good general. Um, He has made preparations for a British invasion because this invasion route had been used in the French and Indian War. You know, there had been battles here all through the French and Indian War. So he knows what he has to do to defend upstate New York, and he proceeds to do it. He dams streams. So the water backs up and floods. He chops down trees across paths. He, he makes havoc in the woods so that it's very hard to move. But at the last minute, he's yanked from his job because the New Englanders don't like him. He's not small-D democratic. You know, he's a big-deal New York landowner. He's kind of imperious. And the militiamen from New England don't get along with him. So he is replaced at the last minute by Horatio Gates, an American general, uh, born in Britain, served in the British Army, was a captain in the British Army. But he settled in America um, before the revolution began, and he took the patriot side. So Gates is now in charge of this theater. But Washington is here in Philadelphia, and Howe clearly is coming for him this way. So Washington decides he, he has some troops harassing Howe as he lands, and there are a few little tiny engagements uh, in northern Delaware uh, as Howe is approaching. 
But now let's go to our other map. So see, here we are. Here's Philadelphia. Here is the Delaware. Here's Head of Elk. This is where Howe comes. So Howe is going to come. Howe is going this way. The first battle that they have, this is a creek, Brandywine Creek. And here it is again. And Washington places his army here. These little, like, combs or mustaches. Those are Washington's troops. And Howe's army is coming this way. You see this name, Niphausen. He is a Hessian commander. He's leading uh, a force this way. And his job is to make the Americans think that he's the main attack. But what Washington failed to think of is that up the river here is a ford. And this is Lord Cornwallis has come this way. He's crossed here. It's not defended. And he swings down here. So Washington's right wing, this is the left end of his position. This is the right. All of a sudden, here are the British on the right behind behind the American right. And Nippowson is pressing this way. So it's not a good situation. And in fact, uh, the, right, the right retreats. General Green here, Nathaniel Green. Uh, he's the son of a couple in Rhode Island who, who own an iron foundry. Uh, he's just like Henry Knox. He's never fought before in his life. But he turns out to really have a knack for it. Green covers the retreat. Uh, These men, Sullivan's troops, they are uh, in disarray. Green opens his ranks, which means he lets his soldiers, orders his soldiers to stand aside to let their fellow Americans just just pass through them. Then they close their ranks again uh, to fight and resist the British who are coming on, just to slow them down. But this is a defeat. This is uh, September 11th. You, you pointed out it's 9-11, 1777. Uh, this is a defeat. We lose uh, 150 killed. Um, that's more than the British lose. Excuse me, 300 killed. You know, and that sounds like little numbers. And I have to interject something here. I, I just finished a biography of John Marshall, who fought in this battle. Uh, when John Marshall was like a young lieutenant, he was right here at Chad's Ford. And um, in 1901, Justice Holmes uh, gave a speech commemorating the 100th anniversary of Marshall becoming Chief Justice. You know, and Holmes fought in the Civil War. And he gave a kind of snotty speech. There's a little paragraph in there where where he says, well, of course the battles that uh, Marshall fought in, the battles in the Revolution, were just skirmishes, you know, compared to the Civil War. You know, and I read that and I thought, well, yeah, Gettysburg was a skirmish next to Stalingrad. Does that mean your battle was unimportant? You know, when you're dead, you're dead. Even if 300 are dead or 3,000 or 30,000. You know, being killed in the Revolution was no more fun than being killed in the Civil War or any other war. So that's something to remember when we see you know, we look at the scale of these battles, and it can look relatively small. 
but uh, lives were being lost. People were putting their lives on the line. And wasn't Brandywine the longest battle and the largest battle of the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Brandywine? Well, up to certainly. um, You know, New... The, the battles for New York, there were probably more troops in the area, but maybe not engaged in the actual mm-hmm. fighting. Yeah, but this is a big, you know, this, this, this is a several-mile um, uh, whole um, front here. So uh, having lost this battle, and here we are on the big map, um, uh, Howe is able, he outmaneuvers Washington, and he marches into Philadelphia. So Philadelphia has fallen Congress takes off. Congress flees. Uh, and the British are, have taken the capital. Do you know where they went? They went to a town which is not on here. It's called York. Oh, I know York. You know York? <laughs> have you been to York? York, Pennsylvania, yes. York, yeah. York's not very big, is it? No, but it's a very interesting place. Well, um, the people who had to be there didn't think it was so interesting. They, uh, <laughs> no. There were a lot of complaints from the uh, congressman, uh, my, my, my idol, Governor Morris, um, who was in Congress at this time, and he, he writes a letter from York, and it's like, uh, like oh, my God. Well, it must have been <laughs> a very small town Well, at the time. it was a small town, and they were all jammed together. The only building they had was the courthouse. You know, so here they were all crammed into that. Yeah. And um, they, were not, they were not very happy. They're also not very happy because Washington has lost. You know, here's the man in whom they put their trust. He, he wins Trenton and Princeton. That's very nice. But first he lost New York. Now he's lost Philadelphia. And doubts begin to arise. Now, but Washington is not simply biding his time. He wants to attack Howe. And the point of his attack will be Germantown. This is a little town uh, north of Philadelphia. I mean, if you go there now, you know, Philadelphia is this big metropolitan area. But Germantown was a distinct town. And this was where uh, many of Howe's troops were. He'd moved some to try and clear the Delaware River down here. But so Washington thought, ah, these guys are isolated let me attack here, and, and if I prevail, you know, maybe I can retake Philadelphia. So in October, uh, and, and what, is, what is the exact date? Do you have that? Of Germantown? Germantown, October yeah. 4th. October 4th. Okay, so less than a month. Less than a month after um, uh, Brandywine, Washington attacks Germantown. And um, if you Google this, there's a famous famous illustration of part of this battle. You see it in textbooks. You see it reproduced a lot. Uh, As the Americans attacked, and they had the advantage of surprise, and the attack was going very well, but there was a large stone house owned by a man named Benjamin Chu. He'd been the the chief justice of the colony. He was a loyalist. And the British troops, um, some of them, retired to this house, and it was stone, thick stone walls. And they just, they were in there, it was, they turned it into a fort, and they were firing at the Americans. And so the Americans thought, well, we, we have to clean this out. We have to clean them out of here. But they couldn't. Uh, they only had light artillery pieces. They weren't big enough to bombard the walls. So then they thought, let's, let's try and set fire to the basement. But they, they couldn't get in to do that. 
And there's this famous illustration. I forget the name of the artist. Um, but it's of, of the Americans trying to batter the door down. Uh, and there's an officer uh, ordering the men. They're dead men lying on the steps. They have a battering ram. They're, they're wounded men. Uh, it's a very disturbing and vivid image of what combat was like. And in a way, it's sort of an answer to Justice Holmes and his you know, dismissal of these skirmishes. So uh, the attack begins to bog down because people, you know, they're not thinking of where they're going. They're, they're focusing on this chew house. Uh, probably what they should have done is just gone around it, you know, just get far enough away from it, go around it, let them sit there, you know, you'll, you'll deal with them later. But this isn't, this isn't, in fact, what they do. Also, there's a fog this morning, so it's tough to coordinate and the attack bogs down. Once again, Nathaniel Green um, saves the retreat. Uh, so it looks like Washington now has a second defeat around Philadelphia. First was Brandywine, then Germantown. Now, third, you see here, north of Germantown, says White Marsh. And White Marsh wasn't really a town, but it was, it was a place. It was an elevation. You could dig in there. And after this defeat, this is where Washington takes his troops and has, um, improvises fortifications. And in December, looks like there's going to be a third battle. A Lord Howe marches out of Philadelphia toward these troops at White Marsh. And we have a description of it, again by John Marshall, who was there. And he described how Washington rallied his troops. He rode among them. He gave them directions. He said, use your bayonets. And these guys, by this time, they've lost two battles in two months. Uh, They're hungry. They're out of uniforms. Um, They're low on ammunition. They certainly can't attack, but he's trying to rally them to defend. And then what happens is that Howe doesn't attack. You know, he looks at the position. He figures, nah, this, this, this is risky. I'll spend the winter in Philadelphia. And, and Marshall says that, uh, that it was a tribute, you know, to Washington and to his troops that Howe decided not to pick another fight with them. So this is the end of the fighting around Philadelphia, and Washington will spend the winter in a place whose name we all know, which is Valley Forge. Okay, now yes. do all right. Now do we, what do we do? Well, do we, we have any we time have, to do the oh, north? Oh yes, we have questions. We we can do the north. All right, let we me have get let minutes. me get the big map back. But I, I maybe want to mention one one sure. little thing. The Battle of Germantown did impress the French. Yes, they point. did. Yes, it did. So now the French were considering were strongly thinking about being allies. Well, right? the French um, the French want Britain to fail. They've been wanting that for 100 years uh, and have fought a number of wars about this. Um, do, to what degree do they want to help us out? This is their question. They give us, you know, secret help. Do they want to declare war? You know, that's a big thing, and that'll be bigger than America. You know, if they declare war, that'll be in the West Indies, possibly Europe. You know, that's a very big step. And one thing they want to think about is how good are these Americans? What kind of a fight can they put up? And the fact that Washington could do two battles in two months, 
even though he lost both of them. That impressed the French foreign minister, Vergen. Uh, the other thing that impressed him is we got two spectacular victories here at Saratoga because Lord Howe is not coming up here. It's only Sir Henry Clinton. General Burgoyne is having a lot of trouble um, picking his way through all the obstacles that General Schuyler has put in his path. And Lieutenant Colonel Barrymore St. Ledger, who was to come down here, fights battle at Oriskany, which is right here, and it's one of the bloodiest battles in the Revolution. Just a, the, the American general is a man named Herkimer. He was killed. Um, I, ha, I, I was telling you when we were planning this, I had a cousin uh, who, who just passed away uh, a couple years ago, a state trooper upstate, and he had an ancestor in the Battle of Oriskany, so that's my personal connection to it. But it was just a bloody, bloody battle. But the British were stopped. The British and their Indian allies were stopped by the Americans and our Indian allies. So here's, here's Burgoyne all by himself, and the militia of New England, happy now because Schuyler is not commanding them, they rally, they fight two battles around Saratoga, and Burgoyne surrenders. And this also impresses the French. The French. And the Comte de Vergennes. Right. Was he a decision maker in whether the French were, was he influential? In, oh, yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's the man in charge. Because he had commented on the Treaty of Paris at the end of the French and Indian Wars saying, this treaty, uh, th- things are not going to work for the British with mm-hmm. this treaty, and the Americans are just going to, be want, are going to want to be independent mm-hmm. at that point. So right. he in a way, was with the Americans way back when. Well, yeah. he, you know, he thought we might be useful. You know, so, so some of the French are forced for real politique reasons. You know, how to screw Britain. That's, their, that's the, their only reason. There are French who are for us uh, because they embrace the cause. They think that there is something, that this is a fight for freedom which they identify with. Um, I'll just mention one, one French officer, Baron de Kalb. Uh, he had a German name, but he spent his whole life in the service of the King of France. He's actually sent uh, over to America in the late 1760s as a secret agent, and his job is to assess, are the Americans going to revolt any time? And he, he reports back and says, well, you know, maybe sometime, not now, but there's certainly a possibility. And Baron de Kalb... Um, he becomes uh, one of the off French officers who fights with us, uh, and he's killed in a battle in the south. And uh, as he's dying, he's, he's captured uh, by the British, who, you know, in sort of gentlemanly fashion, he's an, an officer, and they, they offer to tend his wounds, but he's, he's mortally wounded. And he says, I'm happy because I, I'm dying in a struggle for liberty. So there were, there were Frenchmen who took that view. The Marquis de Lafayette was another one. And then the others were, were power politicians, and we were a piece on their chessboard. But we're looking like a pretty good piece because we've won Saratoga, and Washington has shown some gumption here. So now Washington's at Valley Forge, and that will be our next program together, uh, Washington... Um, 
Hamilton's best friend at Valley Forge. And it, Hamilton also, and yeah. Marshall. They're all there yes, together. Yes. Um, so there are ste- still seats left. Uh, if you want to get tickets for that program, we hope to see you there. And then there will be another one following that. Um, but how about questions sure. now? Okay. Sure. Did Howe regret not having supported Burgoyne in Saratoga? I don't think so. Um, you know, Howe's plan worked. Burgoyne's plan didn't work. You know, it's sort of confirmation bias. Uh, he, you know, he wanted to take uh, Philadelphia, and he did. And then, um, I mean, Benjamin Franklin, who's in France at this time trying to get the French to ally with us, he, he makes a joke of it and says, well, Lord Howe has conquered Philadelphia, but he'll find that Philadelphia will conquer him, meaning that Howe will just enjoy the high life and his mistress and parties and all this kind of thing, which, which he does. But, but Franklin is trying to put a, you know, a spin on a, a bad thing. How did women, such as Martha Washington, contribute to the war effort? Well, Martha Washington spent um, every winter with her husband at wherever he was camped. And uh, there are some anecdotes about her uh, interacting with the troops. There's one (laughs) very charming one early in the war uh, when Washington is outside Boston and she has come up there to join him. And so this kid uh, comes in to report from his unit. You know, Washington asks every every unit to send regularly reports on their status and what's going on. So this kid shows up, and he's got this uniform. You know, it's like covered with braid, and he's like 18 or something. Uh, And Washington says, um, what rank are you? And he says, I'm the adjutant's assistant. Now, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. I mean, an adjutant is an assistant, right? But the adjutant found this kid and said, all right, you do, my, you know, you do this errand. And this, this boy like, managed to buy this uniform. And so Washington kind of uh, uh, says, uh, you, you seem very young for such a position. And the kid says, yes, but I'm growing older every day. And Washington and Martha smile at each other. So that, that's just a nice little window yeah. into an interaction. Now, were there other women who well, there, wintered you know, with there the were, soldiers? There were women of the army who were not camp followers. You know, camp followers are like prostitutes, basically. Women of the army were people who traveled with the army, women who traveled with the army to, um, to cook to do, you know, first aid, care for wounded. That, that, that was an actual official uh, thing. They were supposed to be there. They, their presence was accepted and welcomed. Was that, that year-round or just um, winters? Well, yeah, you need them. You need them all the time. The most famous one, um, and she, she um, gets her fame the following year in 1778, a woman named Molly Pitcher, uh, who is the husband of an artilleryman, and is reputed to have taken over his gun when he was when he was injured. And there's even the story that um, you know a cannonball rolled uh, under her skirt between her legs, and she said, "Oh, if it had been a little higher, that wouldn't have been so good." Um, <laughs> this is probably fiction, but um, but that is the story that's told of her. But but you know she's she's like a, a symbol 
um, a face that has been put on these women who did play a role. Did the British and or continental forces ever consider a compromise in which part of the 13 colonies would remain under British control and the rest would be permitted to self-govern? Well, this will come a little later. The British will send a peace commission in 1778, and they will, um, you know, make some... They will make some offers which, if they had made them in 1774, there might not have been a war, or there might not have been certainly a war so soon. You know, offering uh, more independence to the colonies, uh, you know, maybe maybe even uh, a colonial parliament that would somehow work in tandem with, uh, with the mother of parliaments. But by that time, it's too late. I mean, blood has been shed... Mm-hmm. People have been fighting for two years, three years. They're not, they're not going to pay any attention to it. And, and the British only do it um, when they see that this war is really dragging on. I mean, you know, we didn't win it right away in 1777. And then, you know, we'll, in Valley Forge, we'll get to this. But uh, can they win it by taking the capital? Well, they have taken the capital, but, and yet France has now entered the war. So this is a whole different thing. It's not Britain just dealing with their colonies. Their ancient enemy is now in the field. So now it becomes a world war. You know, all the naval forces they have here have to now split their attention because there are islands in the West Indies that they own and islands that the French own, and the French want some of the British islands back. And, you know, it's a whole different ball game now. Now we know and we will talk about this at the next program, the condition of Washington's troops in Valley Forge that winter was just dire. Right. What were the, condi- were the British troops okay and doing great in Philadelphia? Well, well, yes. I mean, Philadelphia is, uh, you know, second largest city in the, in the English-speaking world. And, and how, you know, how... Um, likes the high life. They, they do have lots of parties and festivities. I have a friend, uh, he used to be the editor of New York Times Books, Tom Lipscomb, and he belongs to the um, Society of the Cincinnati. So in other words, he's a descendant of a revolutionary mm-hmm. officer. And so his ancestor was a lieutenant, I believe, from Virginia. And he was at Valley Forge. And, and uh, Tom Lipscomb has told me, well, every chance he got, he would slip into Philadelphia to go to these parties. Because you know that's where the that's where the action was. So um, and and also the British Army uh, is well organized. You know they they have their quartermasters, uh, their medical operations. This is all up and running. It all works more or less. Uh, one of Washington's tasks during the Revolution, and it takes you know, much more time than the actual battles, but it's creating all this, you know, creating this mechanism of how you support and supply troops. And this is a constant worry for him. Um, One of his first um, clothiers, you know, a man responsible for uniforms, problem with this man was he was colorblind. And so some of the uniforms he made for the Americans were red, 
which when you're fighting the Redcoats is, is, is an error. So, you know, and that, I mean, that's, that's so out there, that's, that's like a joke. But, but you know, there, there was incompetence, um, you know, lack of supplies, lack of food. I mean, it, it was just a chronic thing. And, and, and they are able to improve, but it's, but it's a slow process and a constant process. So France was now thinking more strongly about supporting. Yes, yes. What about Washington's own government? Uh, well, yes. Washington, in addition to the British, he's also um, fighting some attacks in his own rear because uh, as he has lost at Brandywine and, and then again at Germantown, there are people in Congress who are now cooped up in York and they're having doubts. You know, they're having doubts about this man. There are also some officers who would like to displace him. Um, Replace him also? Well, t- yeah, take his place, yeah. exactly. There's General uh, Gates up here, hero, given a gold medal, you know, by Congress. Um, uh, he would sort of, he would like Washington's job. Uh, there is a, a French uh, volunteer by the name of Conway. Now, that's an Irish name, but he had an Irish family, who, Catholic family, who came to France, and he's a Frenchman. But, uh, you know, he thinks, um, this is a little later when France, France becomes our ally, but he thinks he ought to be running the whole war effort. Uh, so this is an ongoing thing, and it really won't end until the following year, until 1778. There are these, you know, these little plots... It's also hard for historians to figure them out um, because they were plots. You know, <laughs> people weren't like writing diaries about about what they were thinking of. So, you know, we have to sort of um, speculate and figure out. But but Washington himself felt uh, very beleaguered by this, uh, and then he has allies. He has people sticking up for him. Um, Hamilton, among them, who's now, by now he's on Washington's staff. Uh, Washington's own staff is very loyal. Uh, Most people who serve with Washington directly are very impressed. Now, did it help that uh, Lafayette was his aide? Well, when he, you know, now we're we're jumping ahead a little because Lafayette is not yet, is not, he comes in Valley Forge. But yes, that will help. Okay. That will help. Um, we have time for, I I think, one more question. And I'll end it with the question that will lead into Valley Forge. Um, Gouverneur Morris is, the person who wrote this, is my favorite founding father. Why is he yours? Well, he's, you know, he's the one I maybe would like to go to dinner with. Uh, no, I mean, of, co- of course, Washington. I would want to see Washington. I just want to see him. I wouldn't learn anything because Washington is very guarded. You know, Washington is just a reserved, guarded man. Morris is the opposite. Um, the way the way I've 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 put it in Morris talks is that if you have one phone call, you only get one phone call. And it's a phone call to a founding father. And you're in four situations. You've just been thrown in jail. 
You've just been taken to the emergency room. You need $10,000 right away. Someone canceled at dinner, and you've got to last minute plug someone in. The person you would call in all those situations would be, would be Governor Morris. He would, he would go to jail and bail you out. He would go to the hospital and offer very sympathetic, intelligent medical advice because he, he lost a leg in an accident, and he, he took health very seriously and empathically. He would give you the $10,000, and he might not expect it back. He, he did that during his life. And he'd be great at dinner, but just don't seat him next to your wife. <laughs> and, and he was Hamilton's best friend. And he was Hamilton's okay. best friend. Well, Richard Brookheiser, thank you so much thank for you. this evening. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History. Or visit us at nyhistory.org.